This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. The new Christian Zionism is new because it has nothing to do with dispensationalism. Most scholars have always associated the term Christian Zionism with all those crazy dispensationalists who are all about the rapture and very detailed, bizarre schedules for what's going to take place in the end times. They seem, they claim to know what's going to happen first and second and third, and the Jews have to be sort of destroyed on planet Earth before their uh, schedule can resume. And so this project, the New Christian Zionism, and it's a growing movement, um, we put out a book in 2016, 10 of us scholars from all different directions and traditions. And although uh, some of the scholars had some background in that, nevertheless, the project itself has nothing to do with dispensationalism. And it's new because it says that uh, Zionism is not just in the Old Testament, but it's in the New Testament, is throughout the New Testament. And we haven't seen it because we've been trained not to see it. Um, it mm-hmm. There was the great book you know, published 50, 60 years ago, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn, in which he went to each of the major revolutions in the history of science and discovered that there was plenty of evidence for the new scientific revolution, uh, say Newton, say Einstein, right on the surface of things in front of the eyes of the biggest and most famous and most established scientists, but they could not see it because they had been trained not to see it. Their existing paradigms, the dominant paradigms, uh, left this stuff out and, and actually covered it up. And, and that's what's been going on with the Zionism that's all over the place in the New Testament that, that biblical scholars and preachers have not seen because they have been uh, feeding from their mother's breast, as it were, with the gospel of supersessionism. Now, that's a fancy theological world, uh, word, the root of which is supersede or replace. That is that the Gentile church supersedes a Jewish Israel in God's affections. So God no longer has any affections mm. for the Jewish people of Israel unless they accept Jesus as Messiah. God no longer has any interest in that little tiny strip of land on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. Uh, it's no more interesting. It's no more significant to um, to him than New Jersey, which is about the same size. So, uh, which is where I live. <laughs> so you know, Christ, so Christians, at least since the fourth century, have believed that. After 30 AD, or 33, depending on how you date the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, uh, God stopped looking to the, G- to the Jewish people for any um, particular reason unless they confessed Jesus, and God stopped being interested in that little land of Israel. 
before you go into the new back to the new Christian Zionism, we should point out that simple move of saying that God, I like that you say he has no longer has any affections for this particular people or this particular place. I mean, that does eventually spin up into horrible treatment of that particular people, uh, wherever they were found across Europe, et cetera. Like as soon as you as soon as you make that move of devaluing them out of the affections of God, then other kinds of moves can be made and justified as well. Right. If you believe that God has basically rejected Israel, Jewish Israel, his Jewish people, because they, uh, most of them, not, uh, by no means uh, all of them, and by no means um, um, even a vast majority, but, but a majority of them um, rejected Jesus as Messiah, then it's easy to go to the next stipulation that since God has rejected them, God has put a curse on them. And therefore, mm-hmm. they're a curse to the global people, to uh, humanity generally. And it's very easy then to, to accept demagogues who tell you that since they're a curse and since God has cursed them, we should get rid of them. And it's no surprise that Hitler and the Nazis published Martin Luther's On the Jews and Their Lies, 70 pages, a single spaced in English, mm. in which Luther says not just anti-Jewish things theologically, but anti-Semitic, treating them as a race of people, which they are not a separate race, and saying horrendous things about them. And we should destroy their synagogues and um, do violence to the things that they have. So um, it's not a necessary step, but it's a step that was taken by many Christians in the history of Christianity after the fourth century. So going back to dispensationalism, which some people may have heard of that or not, they certainly, most people have heard of a very popular series of books that tries to imaginatively, or I always thought it was imaginative, and then I later learned that actually the authors believe it was prophetic, uh, that they were actually laying out the history of how dispensationalism was going to work, and that's the Left Behind series that at some point was a top seller in the United States. And that cultivated this kind of rapture, millennial, uh, tribulation, imagination for many Americans, and I'm sure it went further than America as well. Uh, And that was uh, heavy in the Baptist tradition and the Pentecostal charismatic tradition, and and it made its way into all kinds of sectors of of popular Christianity. Now, you're an Anglican priest, right? So, um, So I don't think most people think of the Anglicans as a Zionist organization. Um, so when you say these are people from across denominations, why is, why would we see, uh, so many scholars from different denominational backgrounds, different theological backgrounds, geographically dispersed as well, um, supporting something called new Christian Zionism. And I also want you to, at some point, um, tell us why you stuck with the word Zionism. Cause I think a lot of people would be tempted to drop it, uh, cause it's a hot button issue for a lot of people. So, well, first of all. Uh, I think you got three questions in there. Uh, yes. The first is, uh, what about the Anglicans? <clears throat> and yes, I am an Anglican priest. Um, Anglicans are divided on this, but uh, on, on, on Zionism and Christian Zionism. Uh, but the majority of Anglicans in the world are in the global south. 
And the majority of these Anglicans are, are very much Christian Zionists. They see the Zionism in the New Testament mm. and they support the state of Israel uh, for not very, uh, for, for theological reasons, although they might not always be able to articulate those reasons in much detail. Um, secondly, there are, you know, scholars who, who support Christian Zionism up close and even from a distance, largely because of the reevaluation of Israel that's taken place since the Holocaust and World War II. Here we had, and scholars and Christians realized this after World War II, the most Christianized country in history, Germany, turn against God's people and want to destroy them. And the majority of even Christians who went to church on Sunday morning seemed to give some sort of support, not all of them, but, but the majority seemed to give some sort of support to this new uh, Nazi movement in the 1930s because it rescued them from, from the depths of depression and despair. Uh, so scholars after the Holocaust said, what happened? And they started to realize, they started to go back to, to Romans 9 through 11. And they started to realize things, uh, you know, W.D. Davies, uh, for example, the great New Testament scholar, uh, uh, um, published a book on Jesus and the land and said, whoa, Paul never calls the church the new Israel. And he never calls the Jewish people the old Israel. We got that wrong. So I think that's why you've got scholars from all different traditions is we're all learning from this new scholarship that's been done since the Holocaust that has made us reevaluate mm. and uh, reinspect our, our, our previous thinking about Israel. And hey, um, I'll be honest, I was a supersessionist until about 20, 25 years ago. And, and I just took in uncritically uh, uh, the theology of supersessionism that, that the Gentile church has replaced Jewish Israel in God's affections. And the land of Israel is no more significant to God today than, as I said, the, well, you know, the land of Zambia or Colombia or New Jersey. Uh, mm. and, and your third question um, that was in there. Was why stick with Zionism? Oh, yes, yes. Well, um, it's a biblical word, not Zionism, but Zion is all over the Bible, uh, uh, including the New Testament. So I, so I like the biblical nature of the word. Um, and it's the word that Jews have used for both secular and religious support of the state of Israel. And, and religious Jew, Jews believe that somehow the state of Israel is connected to biblical prophecy. And I think they're right. We think they're right. Not perhaps in a one-to-one -one -one correspondence, uh, well, certainly not in one-to-one -one correspondence with everything the state of Israel does day by day, but uh, we argue that the Bible, Old and New Testaments, uh, prophesy a massive return of Jews from all over the world to the land at some time in the future. Uh, Peter basically says this in Acts 3.21, after the resurrection, uh, he talks about the apocatastasis that still is to come. And that was the word used in the Septuagint 
for the return of Jews from all over the world back to the land. And, and Peter said, even though Jesus has risen from the dead, not, every, not all the biblical promises have been fulfilled yet. Now, N.T. Wright is a principal um, proponent of the new supersessionism, all right? Uh, uh, I'll call it the new supersessionism to contrast with the new Christian Zionism. And, you know, N.T. Wright is also an Anglican, mm-hmm. Tom Wright, and he's a friend of mine, and I, and I love him to death. And, and he's done, you know, much, much wonderful work in biblical theology. He's probably the most influential biblical theologian in the world today, bar none, bar none. Uh, and Tom has done marvelous work with how necessary the history of Israel is to the story of the gospel up until 30 AD, how it's no longer sufficient to, to describe the history of the gospel as going from creation, fall, and then leaping forward to Jesus and redemption, skipping over the history of Israel. Thank God for Tom Wright. And, and Tom Wright also, thank God to Tom Wright for um, showing us the the radically false hermeneutic, false, presu- false historical presuppositions that Bultmann taught scholars for a hundred years. And now we can replace N.T. Wright on history. Uh, we, we can replace uh, Bultmann's false hermeneutic of biblical history with Tom Wright's much better uh, 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 hermeneutic of history. But all that being said, with all the uh, of Tom's uh, scholarly virtues, uh, uh, nevertheless, he's really a classical supersessionist. And so, uh, you know, you know, Tom's a fellow Anglican with enormous influence, far, far more influence than I will ever have. Um, and, and I've talked to Tom about this a little bit. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I would say to him that Zionism, uh, that, that there still is a connection, um, therefore, between uh, the Jews of the Bible and the Jews of today, uh, albeit circuitous and indirect, but nevertheless real. mentioned Acts and Acts becomes a, what happens after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus becomes an interesting set of test cases for how the apostles and the church in Jerusalem are thinking theologically. And, uh, you know, like you, I had not thought much about supersessionism. I was kind of uncritically, it was just floating around and I probably was a a passive supersessionist. Uh, and then I was work. I worked on a book on ritual, um, and that's where I got hit in the face with some things that were going on in Acts, and looking at how how the Gospels and how the Book of Acts. Oh yeah, that that book right there. Um, that I think you're the only one who's read it, but I appreciate. I appreciate. <laughs> oh, it's a great how, book. How well, you've it's read really, it. Um, it's really helped me seriously. It's a great book. Well, that's a grand compliment. Um, but that. Uh, when I got to Acts and l- just looking at how they talked about the temple and the the rituals of Israel and, and the rituals of the Torah as they were corrected, and you realize, I mean, actually, the thing I and I think David Rudolph brings it up in this book that you've edited. Um, 
the very last thing Paul is doing before he gets arrested in Jerusalem is uh, he is going to the temple to offer sacrifices along with some other men to show that he is not teaching uh, the neglect of the Torah amongst the Gentiles. So you package that sentence, like that sentence and has all those the parts. those are animal right? sacrifices. Oh, go ahead. Those are animal sacrifices. Are, yeah, animal sacrifices. The, Most Christians think, what? Same kinds of animal sacrifices that, that Jesus would have yeah. performed, yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, I think you have to have a good, I mean, I, I know Tom, I know Tom too, and I, I think I've heard him say on this question, like, well, it's just a transitional period. Um, well, I think, and again, we can quibble about the details in, in Paul's letters and how he extends that thinking into many of his letters. Um, I think for most Christians, the, the workaday Christian who hasn't had time to investigate all of this, they're going to ask this question to you. They're going to say, so what are you saying? The Jews are Christians too? Yeah. Um, I would refer them to the end. What? Well, um, the latent question behind that one is, oh, are you saying that all Jews, by virtue of being born to a Jewish mother, are saved? in a Christian understanding of salvation. And I would say, no, the rabbis never taught that either. The rabbis taught the same words that Paul uses in Romans eleven twenty six: all Israel will be saved. But they didn't mean every last Jew. They had stipulations. Maimonides has all kinds of stipulations for Jews who won't make it uh, into the world to come for doctrinal and moral reasons. And um, so, no, I... Um, I, 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 I happen to believe as, um, uh, as a Christian theologian who wants to be Orthodox and wants to subscribe to the historic Orthodox, um, tradition that Jesus is necessary for salvation and not just ontologically, but epistemologically, which I'll, I'll translate those gobbledygook words, not just the being of Jesus, but one has to know Jesus and confess him. With, with the lips, Romans 10, that Paul writes and, you know, confess him as Lord um, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Paul writes that right in the middle of his three chapters, Romans 9 through 11, which is his most mature reflection uh, toward the end of his life in the closest thing we have to a, a, a systematic theology by Paul. Um, concerning salvation for Jews. So, but, mm. but that doesn't mean that, that I know uh, what's going to happen to my Jewish friends who, uh, you know, as far as we know, I never confessed Jesus before they die. Uh, I believe Jews, Jews are a special case uh, before God. Uh, they're, they, they are the only chosen people after all. And, um, Paul talks about uh, partial hardening that has that came upon them for our sakes, our being a Gentiles, and also after the Holocaust. It is in the natural. It's impossible for a Jew. Most Jews I know uh, have relatives who were killed in the Holocaust or were survivors of the Holocaust. And so it's impossible for a Jew to hear the word gospel or Jesus or church or Christianity, mm -hmm. and not immediately start smelling the gas and the fires at 
at Auschwitz. And so Jews are a special case, I believe. And I make this, uh, um, this argument at the end of my book, Israel Matters. Jesus is necessary for salvation. Um, but uh, my good Jewish friends who love the God of Israel, um, uh, I leave them to God and, and, and uh, God's justice and God's mercy. Yeah, I think that what you said about the Holocaust is really important to translate to other sectors of even the church. Uh, I was, had a, a interviewed Isam McCauley, who's another Anglican, um, on driving while, or sorry, not driving while black, reading while black, um, which is a play on the phrase driving while black. And um, we, I pushed him on the issue of slavery. Uh, my my view that I don't think is very controversial that Exodus was actually not liberation from slavery; it was liberation from oppressive slavery and transfer into being a slave of God, which is uh, mm. the, the, the kind, loving uh, taskmaster who is over us. Because we're constantly referred to in the Old and New Testament as the slaves of Christ, right? Um, mm. But there's this liberty that we have as being slaves of Christ that is, mm-hmm. is unique in that covenant and would have been unique for Israel as well. And so I said, you know, is, so is slavery, should we redeem the metaphor and, you know, start talking about ourselves, you know, within the black church? Is, is there kind of an... Uh, did we lose something here by by refusing to call ourselves slaves, refusing the slave mentality, uh, refusing the metaphor, and uh, and he and he oh and he also was a PhD student of Tom Wright's who we've been talking about, um, and so he said uh, something that I thought was uh, probably the most straightforward thing to think about in these situations is uh, no, it's a perfectly good metaphor, and and what what the Torah is doing with the redemption of the idea of slavery that, uh, that you don't leave slavery, that you be, you come into your loving father's house as his servant. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that bowing and worshiping is a proper interrelation, but some people can't hear that because of, um, of the traumas they've suffered of the traumas they've seen, the traumas that have been right. scarred into their communities. Right. And yeah. I think in the same way, and I did not appreciate this at all growing up in Oklahoma and then in the Midwest, mm-hmm. I didn't know many Jewish people, like the, I didn't even know when they when I heard Jewish people refer to cr- the term Christ killer, I didn't even know what it meant. I didn't understand mm-hmm. the the severe heritage of that. Um, mm-hmm. In the same way that I once called my African American stepfather a boy, uh, a guy who was raised in the South yeah, under Jim Crow Ooh. laws, and had no idea like how traumatic Ooh. that word was for him, right? Um, and so I think we, uh, I think one of the first things that I do with students who've had no contact with Jewish people or no very limited contact is uh, you have to train train them in the sensitivities of the terrain. Um, and I think that uh, that then opens a door for thinking about our brothers and sisters uh, in the Jewish faith as people who have a shared heritage with whom we can speak uh, rather than these you know, the way they look, that they might look at us, these weird, you know, these weird people who do these different things over here, right? Hello, hello. My name is Ari Lam, and I'm the host of Good Faith Effort, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate all the most important conversations in society. Conversations feel like they've become so predictable nowadays. You open up Twitter, turn on the news, or even just strike up a conversation with your friends, and you probably feel like you more or less know exactly what people are going to say before they even say it. 
So good faith effort is all about having those conversations that you literally will not hear anywhere else. Want to hear the former head of publicity at Def Jam Records and a legend in the world of hip hop talk about how Abraham and the book of Genesis helps him see Run DMC in a new light? Want to hear a leading VC in Silicon Valley talk about how the prophet Isaiah informs her work? Want to hear a reporter for the New York Times talk about why she's converting to Judaism or a best-selling author and professor of the humanities talk about why she decided to convert to Catholicism? Want to hear an Oscar-winning producer and leading podcaster reflect on how religion can save the American soul? Well, all I can say is subscribe to Good Faith Effort on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get podcasts and give us a listen. And listen in to the inspiring, fun, crazy conversations that you wouldn't hear anywhere else. Um, what, what would be your greatest, you know, before you die, your greatest hope that you would see realized with the, at least the American church where we, where we have the most influence, uh, the American church and its relation to Jews and to, and to the state of Israel today, the, the secular nation state of Israel. Well, I would hope, and I've, and I um, work on this within my own church, the Anglican Church of North America. And I would hope for the whole Christian church in America that that they would be dis that it would be disabused of supersessionism, of replacement theology, and see that we must never unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament, as Andy Stanley has suggested we should. Uh, a modern Marcion, you know, Marcion was the great, well, not great, but mm -hmm. great in influence, uh, early Christian heretic, uh, who said the Old Testament uh, is um, produced by an evil God, different from the God of the New Testament. Um, Greg Boyd is saying the same thing uh, in, in his crucifixion of the warrior God. So we've got plenty of modern Marcions, Marcionites, out there. And I would hope, I mean, my greatest wish to answer your question would be that the American Christian churches would see that God's covenant with Jewish Israel is still in place. He still loves the Jewish people. They're still his chosen people. And as Paul says in Romans eleven twenty eight. They're still beloved to him, even those who have not accepted Jesus as Messiah. Paul specifically is referring to Jews who have not accepted Jesus as Messiah in Romans uh, eleven twenty-eight, and says they are still beloved to God. And, and his blessings and his promises are irrevocable um, toward Jewish Israel. His blessings and his promises are irrevocable, cannot be revoked. And that the land of Israel is all over the New Testament, Paul in Acts 13 says, God gave the land to the fathers. Uh, you know, I'll never forget, uh, I was a New Testament major, well, New Testament early Christian literature at the University of Chicago, way back about 50 years before you were born, Drew. <laughs> and um, I'll never forget you know, a New Testament scholars, and, and, I, and I took all my courses in the Divinity School, which was very intimidating. I, I was a, 
stuttering. I still am a stutterer. I, I, I was a badly stuttering 19-year-old with all these grad students in their 20s, 30s, and 40s at the University of Chicago. And I remember hearing from them and from a New Testament scholars since that the New Testament never takes up the land promise of the Old Testament. Not wrong, wrong, mm. wrong. So I would hope that, that, that would be my hope that the American churches would see that God still loves the Jewish people and God's land promise is still entertained and is still believed and is still hoped for. And, and the restoration of all the tribes is still hoped for um, by the authors of the New Testament. That would be my hope and my prayer. I think uh, many people will hear that and say the land promise. So are you saying all the Palestinians should be ejected from the land? Right. Right. No, I am not, because God is a God of justice. And, uh, you know, the biblical God is a God of justice. And just as Abraham sh shared the land with Lot, so too biblical Jews have always realized that their um, use of the land, their control of the land should always be in line with God's justice. And you see that all through the Old Testament, and, and you see the emphasis on the justice of God in the New Testament also. And, and by justice, well, uh, today you're not referring to thing. swift penalization. Pardon? Yeah. yeah. So exactly. Uh, sorry, we uh, the the delay here is cutting. Uh, we're cutting across each other. Uh, by justice and God's justice, I I I take it as a Bible scholar that you're not referring to harsh penalties for anybody who violates some small infraction, as lots of people like to caricature the Torah, but rather his concern for the vulnerable, for foreigners yes. should be welcomed gladly in. Yes. Uh, the, 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 the gen, gen, general sense of hospitality and maintaining peace for the sake of those you, who are of you and those who aren't of you, right? Yes. And, and most Israelis completely agree with this. Yes, that's right. Um, finally... Before we let you go, I feel obligated to point out that you're a systematic theologian, a historical and systematic theologian. Uh, that's what you taught for most of your career, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, at, at partly, I know part of it was at Beeson. Where, where else did you teach throughout your career? I taught religion, and I was trained. Uh, my PhD is in religion, uh, as you know, from a secular university, the University of Iowa School of Religion. Uh, I taught religion, uh, basically history of Christianity and the world religions and Christian theology of world religions for 26 years at Roanoke College in uh. Virginia, which is an ELCA Lutheran college. And along the way, I became a systematic and uh, historical theologian. Okay. Um, that, so, that, yeah. that makes a lot more sense of other things I've heard you say in the past. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think yeah, teaching I world think, religions you know, should be required for all pastors and theologians. Yeah, and, and, and I specialize in American religion. I did my dissertation on Jonathan Edwards's public theology, which became my first book. So I'm an Edwards scholar. Uh, you know, I've, I, uh, uh, I'm doing my eighth book on Edwards now. I've done seven books on Christian theology of world religions. I've done three books now on theology of Israel and many, many articles and a number of other books and other things, uh, including a secular book on stuttering because I'm a stutterer 
And I've got a little book called uh, uh, Famous Stutterers, 12 Famous Stutterers from Moses to Marilyn Monroe. Hmm. Oh, well, actually, I th- I'm going to go get that one. I have a very close friend who is a stutterer who now is a professor as well, never thought it would ever happen, was called to it and has worked through it. And, and I'm so glad because he has more wisdom than anybody else I know and should be and should be teaching people. So, well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm being self-promoting here, but I think he would like the book. Uh, all stutterers who have read it uh, liked it very much. And, and I would say personally profited from it. That's wonderful. Well, uh, Dr. Jerry McDermott, thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight uh, on this topic that I think many of us need to think much more about. Well, uh, um, Drew, it was a pleasure. And, 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 and I was really thrilled that my recent book, you enjoyed reading on the subway. <laughs> I did. I couldn't put it down, which I often can put down books on the subway, but that one I could not put down. It was wonderful. <laughs> Uh, And we'll put uh, links to that in the show notes. Thank you very much, Jerry. You're welcome. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode. 